you can believe it, last fall we started a series in the Gospel of Mark. You remember that? And we've been slowly working our way through the Gospel of Mark until Holy Week. And over the last seven weeks, we paused to consider who God is calling us to be as a church, to consider our vision, to be a people connected to Christ and one another, a people who abide in Christ in order that we might extend Christ. And now we're going back into the Gospel of Mark. But here's the temptation. The temptation is to move on from what we've just done. To think that somehow our vision is over now, right? And now we're just going to go back into the ordinary rhythm of our life together. But I want you to know this morning is our vision is just getting started. And the trick for us, especially those of us who have been at PC, PC for a long time, is to think about our life in our church differently. To open our hands like this and to say, Lord, would you have your way with me? Would you show me what it means to connect, abide, and extend in the ordinary rhythms of grace that you've given us? And so this summer, as we go back into the Gospel of Mark, we also want to ask the Lord that he would renew us as his people through the ordinary ways that he does that, through word, the Gospel of Mark, and through prayer. That's why we're inviting all of you to offer a prayer of renewal and to share those prayers of renewal with one another. As I mentioned before, you can do that on our website at pcpc.org renew. It's a great way for us to encourage one another during this season of prayer and renewal. I want to share one of the prayers that stuck out to me that was offered this last week. I want you to hear what she says. She prayed, Lord, I thank you for the work you continue to do in life. When I look back over the 30 years I've been at PCPC, I can't help but want to weep with joy for how much I've seen and felt your love through your preached word, small groups, marriage ministry, and individual relationships. I've truly seen this body be the hands and feet of Christ. God, would you cause me to never forget how faithful you have been and will continue to be. Thank you for never letting me out of your grip. Lord, I pray for a renewed still heart towards you. I want to renew a commitment to pray earnestly. I confess I often put doing things in front of prayer. Would you change that in me? Renew my desire to abide only in you and help me fix my eyes on you. Never let the word of truth depart from me. Help me to love and serve others, starting with my family and church as only you can. Amen. I love her honesty about how she often is prone to do before pray. Maybe you feel like that. I know I do. God has called us to be a people of prayer. So as we enter into the summer, let's ask the Lord that he would renew our body together. And as we dive back into the gospel of Mark, let's pray and ask the Lord that he would show us the gospel again and again, and again. And so, would you please stand for reading of God's word as Lane comes up to read our scripture passage for us. This is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter eight. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, 
and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter looked took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. At Park City's Presbyterian Church, we say that we exist to extend the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in Dallas and to the world. And over these last seven weeks, we've been considering what does that really mean for us as we connect, abide, and extend. After all, it's a great sounding mission statement, but what does it actually mean? What does it mean to extend the kingdom of Jesus Christ and how is it that his kingdom transforms us and the world? This morning as we get back into the gospel of Mark, we're going to talk about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What I want you to see is that we have no hope without the kingdom. But I also want you to see that there is no kingdom without the Christ. And there is no Christ without the cross. So I invite you, look with me in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, as we look at this amazing passage together. The first thing I want you to see, I want you to see there is no hope without the kingdom of God. Sometimes I think it's better to start at the end. And so I want you to look at the last verse of the passage. Mark 9 verse 1. You can find it in your bulletin, or you can find it in your Bible or the pew Bible in front of you. This is what Mark says. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, until it comes with power. Now, this is one of the most perplexing things that Jesus said in the Gospels. Jesus is addressing his disciples and he tells them that none of them are going to die until they see the kingdom of God. 
Now we know that his disciples, many of them were martyred. They were killed for their faith and all of them eventually died. And so what on earth is Jesus saying? How can he tell them that some of you are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power? Now to answer that question, we have to answer a much larger and much more important question. And the question is this, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? This is one of the great themes of the Bible. One of the things that unifies the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and yet so often for us as Christians, we don't truly understand what the kingdom of God actually is, and what it means for us as a church to extend that kingdom to Dallas and the world. So what is the kingdom of God? From the very beginning of the gospel of Mark, we're told that Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. This is Mark 1, verse 15. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus went on in the gospel of Mark to begin to teach in parables and every one of them is a story designed to show us what the kingdom of God is like. Mark chapter four, verse 11, and Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Mark four, verse 30, and Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or with what parable should we use for it? The kingdom of God is everything to the Bible. So it should be everything to us as the people of God. What is the kingdom of God? My favorite definition is given by a theologian named Graham Goldsworthy. He said the kingdom of God involves God's people and God's place under God's rule. In other words, the kingdom of God is everywhere where God reigns on his throne. And the kingdom of God is good news. It is the gospel because where Jesus reigns on his throne, there is restoration and redemption. The word that the Bible uses is the word shalom. We often translate that word shalom to the word peace, but it's so much more than that. It is redemptive peace, restorative peace. In other words, the kingdom of God is good news because when God reigns on the throne, there is shalom. There is peace. There is justice where injustices have been done. There is restoration where things have been torn apart. There is reconciliation where there is relational discord. There is healing where there is brokenness. There is forgiveness where there is sin. When God reigns on his throne, he brings peace to the world. When we war against his throne and his kingdom, there's chaos and there's division and there is destruction. You and I live in a world that is absent of shalom because of sin. Sin inside us and sin all around us. And fundamentally, that sin opposes us to the kingship and authority of God. And when we war against his kingdom, it produces chaos in us and chaos all around us. And that chaos is the essence of sin. It is disobedience. It is rebellion. 
And so Jesus, in the earliest parts of the Gospel of Mark, began to preach the good news, the gospel, that the kingdom of God was at hand. So what does it mean when Jesus said to his disciples, some of you are not going to taste death until you see my kingdom come in power? Well, some people think that that must be the transfiguration. It's the next story in the Gospel of Mark. We'll talk about that next week. It's when Jesus was glorified up on the mountain. Some people think maybe he was talking about his death and resurrection. When he conquered sin and death, maybe that's the kingdom come in power. Some people think maybe he's talking about his ascension. They wouldn't taste death until they saw him ascend to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all things. I think the answer is that Jesus is talking about all of it. Jesus told his disciples, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom come in power because that is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to establish his kingdom in power. And here's what's so amazing. Every single one of you want the kingdom. And that's true whether or not you are a Christian or not. There is a longing deep in your soul for the kingdom of God. If you don't believe me, let me put it to you this way. Do you wish that our world had peace? Do you wish that wrongs would be righted? Do you long for justice? Do you long for forgiveness? Do you want to see the broken things mended? That describes you, you want the kingdom. You want and you long for deep in your soul what only the kingdom of God can provide. And yet, we live in a world where people want the kingdom, but they don't want the cross. There's an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers, he put it this way. He said, I think what post-Christianity is, is a desire for the kingdom without the king. That's the world we live in. A world that wants the things of the kingdom, what the kingdom can give, peace, love, joy, and redemption, but without having to bow at our knees at the throne of the king. We don't want to give up our autonomy, and we want to try to achieve the kingdom without the Christ. What I want you to see this morning, there's no hope without the kingdom. There's also no kingdom without the Christ. That's the second thing I want you to see. The story that surrounds Jesus' perplexing statement about the kingdom of God is one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark. It's the story of Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to look with me at Mark 8, verse 27. Mark tells us that Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And what you need to know about Caesarea Philippi is that it was a a place that had strong Roman ties. It was named for the emperor Caesar. It was named in an attempt to declare that Caesar is king. So I don't think it's an accident that this is the place where Jesus is confessed to be the true king, the king of kings and lord of lords. So Mark 8, verse 27, Jesus leads his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
Now the question of Jesus's true identity is another great theme in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember back in Mark chapter four, Jesus calmed a storm. And after he did that, his disciples began to kind of look at him differently. (laughs) They weren't quite sure who they were following at this point. And when they saw Jesus calm the storm, they were afraid. They were afraid not of the storm, they were afraid of Jesus. And they begin to ask, who is this man? Who is this man that we've been following that even the wind and the waves would obey him? Later in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 6, King Herod begins to hear rumblings about the identity of Jesus. And he begins to also question, who is this man? Mark 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. You see, there was a rumbling about the identity of Jesus. People were wondering, who is this man? As he began to heal people and bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And so as Jesus is working these miracles and proclaiming the kingdom, people are questioning his identity. And so Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And I think it's interesting in Mark 8, 28, that they almost echo verbatim the conversation around Herod. The disciples told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So here's our question for us this morning. 2,000 years later, Who do people say that Jesus is? Some say he was just a good teacher, a very wise man. Some say he is the primary human moral example, that if we could just live like him, the world would be a better place. Some people say that he was filled with wisdom and offers a new philosophy of life. You see, Jesus is none of these things. Who do people say that Jesus is? Back in the summer of 1989, classified ad, you remember those classified ads? It appeared in regional newspapers all over Great Britain. And there in this ad, the title said, Your Own Personal Jesus. And then it was followed by a number, and if you called the number, you heard these instructions. Reach out and touch faith. And then all of a sudden, drums began to play. And a guitar riff. You see, it was, a, it was actually a marketing ploy to put out the newest single from the band Depeche Mode. The song was called Your Own Personal Jesus. I played that song for my wife yesterday, and she was like, what is this awful noise? Maybe that describes you this morning. Maybe you're not a Depeche Mode fan. That describes you, Johnny Cash, did a great cover. Your own personal Jesus. It's actually a song about Elvis, because of course it is. But it caught on because people assumed it was a song about the commercialization of Christianity in America. That we have treated Jesus like a classified ad. To just pick up the phone and we can dial him whenever we want, but then when we don't want him, we can discard him. 
that we can kind of make Jesus in our image and use him how we want. Who do people say that Jesus is? Today, some people say he's a liberal Jesus. Some people say he's a conservative Jesus. Some people say he's a Jesus who's come to show us the way we're supposed to live. Some people say he's a Jesus who really didn't do all the things that we think he did and didn't say all the things that the Bible says he said. Who do people say that Jesus is? To his disciples, Jesus followed that question with a question that I want you to answer. Jesus then asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? That is the most important question that you could answer today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Our world would tell you that Jesus is so many things, but Jesus does have a very specific identity, and the apostle Peter saw it. I want you to look with me. Verse 29, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. When we say the words Jesus Christ together, it's not just a name, it's a title. The title Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. It means anointed. In other words, the apostle Peter was recognizing that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher or moral example or philosophy leader. He wasn't Elijah or one of the prophets. He was the Messiah, the anointed one God had sent to bring the kingdom of God and establish it on earth as it is in heaven. Peter recognized that he was the chosen one, the one whom God sent. In the gospel of Matthew, Peter doesn't stop there. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I want you to hear Jesus' response to Peter in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You cannot see that Jesus is the Christ through flesh and blood. Only the Spirit can show you that. But then he goes on. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there in Caesarea Philippi, at a place where there were pagan rituals of sacrifice, that was literally called the gates of hell, that's where Jesus told Peter and made us a promise that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why can we believe that to be true no matter what we face? Because there can be no kingdom without the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But the last thing I want you to see is there can be no Christ without the cross. Why don't you look with me at verse 30. Mark 8, verse 30, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the Christ, the one God has sent to save the world and establish his kingdom. 
after for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, this truth has been proclaimed, Jesus tells them not to tell anybody. Every time I read that in the Gospels, I'm always just kind of confused. I mean, why would Jesus say that? Peter just said, you're the Christ. Shouldn't everybody, I mean, just tell everyone. And yet here's Jesus, he says, don't tell anybody. Yeah, you got me. (laughs) Don't tell anybody. Why? Because I think people didn't quite understand what that word meant. And Peter definitely did not understand what that word meant. Look with me, Mark 8, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is the first of three instances where Jesus predicts his suffering on the cross. In other words, Peter has just confessed that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, and so Jesus says, well, let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you how I'm going to establish the kingdom as the Christ. I'm going to suffer. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed, and in three days, I will rise again. I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes, hearing that for the first time. Jesus has never mentioned that before. What do you think you would have thought? It's easy for us to be hard on the disciples and easy for us to be hard on Peter, but I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Here is Peter. He has longed for the Messiah. He has longed for the kingdom, just like you and me, for there to be justice and peace and righteousness in the world. And finally, he believes with his heart that this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, and now the Christ is telling him he's going to die. He's going to be crucified in shame on a cross. He's going to be rejected. So what does Peter do? Look with me, verse 32. Jesus said this plainly, and so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the scene? Here's Peter. He's just said, you're the Christ. So Jesus says, well, Peter, let me tell you what that means. I'm going to go to the cross. And then Peter rebukes him and says, do not go to the cross, Jesus. Do not go to the cross. That is not the way you bring the kingdom to earth. That is not the way that we win this battle. It's not for you to die. Don't go to the cross, Jesus. That's what Peter said. It's easy for us to be hard on Peter. But you see, how often do we act the same way? How often do we also avoid the cross? How often are we tempted to fight the battles around us out of our flesh and blood and to establish an earthly kingdom? Because here's the deal. If you're fighting an earthly battle and you want to establish an earthly kingdom, you need an earthly warrior. And an earthly warrior comes with an army and a sword in his fist. That's what Peter thought the Christ would do. But Jesus came not to fight an earthly battle. But he came to fight against principalities and powers. 
He came to loosen the grip that evil and Satan has on this world, and he came to defeat it once and for all, and that battle could only be fought at the cross. Peter rebuked Jesus, and so Jesus rebuked Peter. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want you to know that Jesus called Peter Satan for a reason. He wasn't just speaking out of emotion. But you see, earlier in the Gospels, Satan led Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness. Three separate temptations with one common theme. Jesus, prove your identity as the Son of God and the King of Kings by not going to the cross. Turn these stones to bread. Throw yourself off of the cliff. Worship me, Satan said to Jesus. Every one of these temptations had one theme. Don't go to the cross. So when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he wasn't just speaking out. He was recognizing Satan's ploy against him and against you and I. Because you see, that is still Satan's ultimate goal, to tempt you and I as God's people away from the cross. Don't go to the cross, Peter said. He was echoing, unknowingly, what Satan wants for you and for me. So Jesus rebuked him. And he said, you're not thinking of the things of God. You're thinking in the ways of man. Every single day, you and I are tempted away from the cross. Yes, the temptation could be the temptation to sin overtly, and that keeps us away from the cross, but we're also tempted with shame that even in our sin, we would try to conquer our sin on our own apart from the cross. Even in a morning like this, we come and confess our sins. We think, well, I I can't really do that until I first kind of clean myself up. Then I can come and confess my sin. But you see, the gospel says, no, you bring your most filthy and dirty self before the throne. You come and bring all of your sin and all of your shame, and you go to the cross. We're tempted to pursue these earthly kingdoms to build up these small lowercase k kings and to worship them instead of Jesus all the while we were going away from the cross. And what I want you to see this morning is there can be no Christ without the cross. And yet so often, for honest, we are so prone to do for the kingdom that we live a crossless Christianity. What does it mean for us to extend the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ to Dallas and to the world. I think Jesus gives us an answer. This is what he says. Mark eight thirty four, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, living back then in a Roman province, they would often see people going to the cross, 
to be crucified. What you might not realize is they often carried that cross to their crucifixion. They would literally take up the cross that they would be crucified on and they would carry it to the place where they would be raised on it. So this was a vivid image in their mind. So when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he was saying, follow me to where I am going because I'm going to the cross. Follow me to the place where I will conquer sin and death once and for all because I'm going to the cross. Follow me to the place where I will establish my kingdom and I will loosen the grip of the world's kingdoms on your hearts because I'm going to the cross. Jesus gave his disciples and he's giving us as his church an invitation to go where none of us want to go in our flesh. But it's the place where we belong as his people. Jesus has invited us to follow him to the cross. And so this morning, how will you respond? How will you respond to the cross of Christ? How we respond to this place where Jesus died for you and for your sin. The place where he was crucified and sacrificed for you and me as our Passover lamb. How will you respond? Will you respond like Peter and rebuke it? And say, well, I want nothing of that. I want nothing of that. Or will you respond answering Jesus' invitation and following him to the cross. The book of Revelation gives us a vision of what God's people will one day do because of the cross. Revelation 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. For God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. How will you respond to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb who went to the cross for you? How will you respond to his invitation to follow him to the cross? Will you rebuke him? Or will you lay your life down? Will you place your faith, your hope, and your trust in what only the cross can do? Will you follow Jesus to the cross? Will you lay your life down in response to the life he laid down for you and live sacrificially for the kingdom of God. Jesus has invited us to be a cross-oriented people, a messianic people, because that is what the word Christian means, that we would be like Christ, the Messiah, the one who went to the cross for the salvation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now stir in us and give us a vision of the kingdom that we so desperately need. Help us to see that every longing in our heart is really a longing for the kingdom. 
We pray that mercifully you would make war against the places of our hearts that tries to oppose you and your kingdom. Help us this morning to bow the knee, to lay our lives down at the throne room of grace and now to respond with worship, to lift our voices together to our Passover lamb who was slain for us, to respond to the cross, not with rebuke, but with faith, with worship, and with following you all the days of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name.